0: Luke begins the stories of Jesus' ministry by describing Jesus' trip back to his hometown. This is his first trip home since being baptized and since the 40 days he spent in the wilderness being tempted. It is the Sabbath, and like all observant Jews, Jesus goes to the synagogue for worship as was his custom. He volunteers to be the scripture reader for that day and selects as his passage the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, proclaiming that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because it has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, And to declare that now is the year of the Lord's favor. And then with that, Jesus gave the scroll back, sat down, and then gave maybe his shortest sermon ever. Nine words. If only I could be that succinct, right? His sermon today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if we also had read the Isaiah passage from the 61st chapter, verses 1 and 2, we would notice something. that Jesus stops in mid-sentence with the second verse, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus put a period where Isaiah had a comma. Because if Jesus had continued on, he would have read also about Proclaiming the day of vengeance for our God as being grounds for comforting all who mourn. Interesting place to stop, don't you think? It's almost as if Jesus was reinterpreting this ancient text about retributive justice and declaring a new teaching from familiar scriptures. Instead of following up the talk, about the jubilee year, the year of the Lord's favor, this economic holiday that happened every 50 years when debts were forgiven, property was returned to rightful owners, and freedom granted to any who had indentured, servanted themselves, or put themselves in a position of inferiority to others to pay off debts. If he had continued on about Jubilee with words of vengeance, we would have a very different reading of Scripture. But Jesus stops with Jubilee. He stops, and where he stops becomes the most important thing, that it's a celebration of abundance, of reconciliation, and memory of when God restored all as it should be. I think jesus knew what he was doing he's doing more than just quoting an inspiring passage of scripture that he knew he could work out a good sermon with isaiah 61 may have been a a back pocket sermon a sermon you've got ready at any time for many a rabbi in his day and age just like luke 4:18 and 19 is many a back pocket sermon for preachers today it's one of mine, although I worked really hard on this one. Jesus takes this scripture another step further. For as much as he read the text aloud, Jesus let the text read him. He said, today, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He let the text illuminate his time and context, showing him a new meaning and purpose and direction for how he would understand himself. And he used this common language, this familiar verse, this prophetic rallying cry that all the people that day knew by heart to express this new meaning, purpose, and direction To others. But as he does this, he raises some questions, at least for me. For starters, what does it mean fulfilled in your hearing? Whose hearing fulfills these words? What was left unfulfilled until Jesus came into his hometown synagogue and started preaching? among the people that had watched him grow up, maybe helped raise him? Is it by his reading these words that Jesus talks about himself, interprets his coming and his purpose in light of the hopes and dreams and prophecies of the Jewish ancestors? Is it of himself that he speaks? Maybe. Or is it that Jesus is saying all of that and including his hearers in this fulfillment work? Is fulfillment also the result of those within earshot being similarly anointed by the Spirit to bring good news, to proclaim liberty and true sight and freedom and the jubilee year of the Lord? Are the people... Who heard Jesus that day also commissioned to risk taking mission and service like Jesus? Nowadays, probably all churches have mission and service as some part of their core identity. But how integral these two twin born efforts are to a lifeblood of the church has changed with the times. A few centuries ago, missions are what individuals did largely on their own. Sometimes they had the backing of their home congregation, or if they were lucky, a wider denomination. But missions and service weren't what characterized your average local church two or three hundred years ago. Lottie Moon, the missionary that I mentioned last week, wrote numerous letters to the Southern Baptist Foreign Mission Board, expressing her great frustration that more people weren't coming to join her in the cause of Christ for China. She was frustrated that there weren't donations enough to cover supplies like Bibles or writing materials, pens, pencils, paper, so that those who had never heard the name Jesus could have access. It drove her crazy. You can find those letters of a very frustrated missionary who felt very alone on the other side of the world. Now we've improved since Lottie Moon. And so at the turn of the 20th century, missions and outreach were were kind of like events that a person could sign up for. Like you might sign up for a cruise and then take a little excursion dock somewhere and explore an area as part of a wider adventure. But they were still seen as side trips instead of the main journey. And then as little as a few decades ago, service mission trips became experiences that churches could offer, particularly to young people, exposing them to new cultures, peoples, and ways of living in the world. I participated in many of those and I'm grateful for it. But often that model of missions was was sort of like the HGTV Extreme Home Makeover model, where we would roll up in our matching t-shirts with trunks and boxes full of tools and supplies, ready to tackle any job and every job, and the homeowners would be moved to a distance, politely, lovingly, said, you just relax, we'll take care of it, We'll surprise you when we're we're done. We lack the relationship, which is what Jesus was all about. Modeling missions after home makeover shows is not what Jesus means when he says the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to declare the year of the Lord's favor, and that today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Fulfilling the scripture the way Jesus did takes risk. It takes being intentionally made uncomfortable sacrificing personal comforts, speed and control over a project and preferences for how things should go in order to be changed forever by relationships, by encounters with others, even when it might be hard to be around. Fulfilling the scriptures like Jesus did means listening and learning and forming relationships for the long term. Finding companions with whom to walk the long road with. It means engaging in risky mission with and alongside rather than mission for or to others. But I think what makes it risky isn't so much about being with people who are different so much as it is the reaction you get from those who are like you. When you're saying, I think we're a little too comfortable in this way of doing things. We're a little too insulated from risk by a safety net of always going to and being with people who are like us where we can find things in common. And so Jesus tells two stories. To illustrate this point, Elijah the prophet and an unnamed Jewish, non-Jewish widow, they offered to one another vulnerable hospitality through her meeting his needs of physical and spiritual hunger and he meeting her needs for companionship, protection, and healing of her son during a time of famine. Then Elisha, the prophet-apprentice of Elijah, showed Naaman, the wealthy and powerful Syrian military officer, vulnerable hospitality by healing him from disease and showing him how little humility can heal the spirit as well as the body. In both of these stories, God's compassion and mercy is poured out on those of other ethnicities, on a woman who was oppressed, and on a man whose identity was based on oppressing others through military force. Jesus lifts both of these stories up in worship as a way to illustrate how vulnerability leads to the very desire God has for all creation and has had since the beginning compassionate companionship, a willingness to feel alongside someone you break bread with. In worship then and now, Jesus brings a passion for relating to and following this God who creates us to be incomplete without each other. The need for genuine relatedness deepens our faith development through opportunities to practice giving, receiving, and blessing all kinds of gifts and givers alike, testifying to the abundance experienced when everyone has enough. And then with the spirit of the Lord's anointing, a realization happens that there is no us in them. It's only us always been us. We just get distracted and preoccupied by the differences. And so I guess that's why Jesus' stories didn't go over so well in worship that day. The extravagant generosity of God can be hard to bear when it's extended to people or social groups disliked by others. Jesus took a real risk in bringing up these stories in the collective memory bank of his people. And they reacted to this by not even letting him finish his first sermon. They interrupted him and ignored him and sought to find a cliff from which to push the truth over the edge rather than face the truth Themselves. But we're no different, really. They, like we, don't like being told that our enemies are God's friends, God's beloved, just like we are. No matter how hard we try, we cannot seem to get God to respect our boundaries, our borders, our policies, and our laws. God keeps plowing right through them and inviting us to follow or get out of the way. It's uncomfortable, this God that breaks boundaries and borders, that loves everyone on either side of the border, on either side of the policy, whether they have to enforce it because it's their job or it's those on the receiving end. God understands the hard and lean and mean times we're in. And if we're going to follow God and understanding that, that takes risk. Risk, mission, and service brings up a lot of stuff. And I think that's the point. Because we're also still the ones listening to Jesus. Hearing him say to us today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. We do our best to keep our eyes trained on Jesus as we do this work in the season of Pentecost, discerning where the Holy Spirit will have us go. This spirit that holds our congregational story and nurtures our roots, even as we are sent out into the world. We know where the Spirit sent Jesus, the courageous and beloved truth-teller that he was. How will we respond to the call to go to the edge where risk and courage, hope and promise are waiting for us? Whatever we take to be the heart of the gospel will be the central shaping force in our life and our life of faith. For Jesus, the shaping force for his ministry was the very real presence of the Holy Spirit and that spirit-anointed ability to be prophetic in a gentle, compassionate, pastoral way. And that is a risky, tightrope to walk. Just like Isaiah and Elijah and Elisha walked before him, Jesus walked it trusting that God held the thread upon which he balanced. And then God, that thread, is held in a steady hand. It's the thread we're called to walk and to hold on to as well, if we're serious about claiming the mission and purpose of Jesus for ourselves and ourselves as church today. What might change in our lives and in church, our church, if we stood before one another and declared, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news, to release all who are captive and held captivated by the things of this world, to proclaim a new sight, to turn sight into insight, about how to respond to the needs of this world, how to offer freedom from the things that hold us back, and to offer a new beginning to all who struggle to find their way. May we ponder this, and then let our discernment change us and shape us, so that all who encounter us might say, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in our hearing. May it be so. Amen.